Welcome back to the Connecting Minds podcast. Christian Yordanov here. Today we have a returning guest, Matthew J. Palamari, a.k.a. Matteo. It's his fourth time on the show, so I'm sure some of you or quite a number of you already know who he is. So with that said, Matteo, welcome back, bro. Thank you for having me back, Christian. I love being on your show. I can't believe it's four times already. Four times, record holder. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us now uh, about your, what, what have you been up to the last um, a few weeks since we last spoke? <laughs> yeah, so I'm just returned a couple of days ago from the 50th annual Santa Barbara Writers Conference. And I've been with them for 35 years. And um, it was a very intense week. I taught uh, five workshops in the morning. I did a presentation on social media and web pages. And then I did a panel on podcasting and audiobooks. And um, this conference has a very long, intense, very rich history. Um, and, uh, I'm giving my age away here, but uh, Ray Bradbury is a famous science fiction writer. Um, he, he kicked off the conference for 37 years. He did uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Fahrenheit 451, The Martian Chronicles, The Illustrated Man. Um, he wrote the screenplay for the, the one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, Moby Dick, from, from back in the 60s. And um, he was one of my mentors. He kicked off the conference for 37 years. And then we've had tons of famous people from the uh, 20th century writers and, and movie stars. It's really kind of high profile. And it's a week long. Um, it goes all day and all night. They're, they have pirate workshops that go from 9 o'clock at night until the wee hours of the morning. Wow. Yeah. That's hardcore. Yeah. It's a real special place. It's family for me. How big is the conference now? We had, uh, we just about sold out. Um, I think total probably three to four hundred nice uh they started doing things like it used to be just you come for the week but now you could come for one lecture or you can you can have a one day at the conference for you know a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks or something um and you've been with them 35 years so have you been doing workshops there since since uh 35 years ago yeah so i started off my first year was 88 and I went and didn't know anybody and didn't know anything, and I got totally destroyed. And then um, I went back the second year, and I actually won a fiction award. Um, and it was for a story about a guy who didn't listen to what the shaman told him, and he, he took some visionary substances, and he lost his mind. Um, dark, dark straight-up horror story. Um, I won a big fiction award for that. And I wasn't even going to go that second year because I was having some financial issues. And um, somebody insisted that I go and they sponsored me. And then these science fiction geek guys that I know asked me to lead an unofficial workshop, which I did. The, the conference, they, they said, it's okay, you can do that. But it wasn't part of the regular offerings. And I had a big turnout. So they ended up hiring me. Um, I was the youngest workshop leader for 15 years. Wow. And uh, now I'm a geezer. <laughs> but, but uh been at it for a while yeah. so now i'm i'm really deeply involved with it i help with the planning of it and you know uh, a lot of the execution of what happens and all that that's so awesome bro so, i love that yeah and though, when just when when did you start going to south america and and you know with the with the you know the shipibos and all the other indigenous yeah. folks <clears throat> excuse me i started going in 2000 was my first year okay okay my first Exposure to any of that was 1998. I went to the Entheobotany Seminars in uh, the Maya Ruins in Ushmal and spent a week there. And then I had been I had been researching ayahuasca on my own for, for maybe 10 years, and I finally found somebody who was involved with it, and they were a reliable person. Mm -hmm. So the shamans used to come up here all the time up to the United States, and they were coming twice a year. Um, and we would do three ceremonies in the spring and three in the fall. And then I got myself involved. So my very first jungle dieta was in 2000. Right, right. And just this past October, I did my 13th dieta. Wow. Um, I've also spent a lot of time with the Shipibo Indians. I stayed in their village for probably a month and a half. 
Mm, yeah. Um, so you've I, been, and I've been all through the Andes working with the plant medicines up there too. Yeah, yeah. So you've been writing like well before, well before uh, going there. You, you said '88. You were already writing, getting published. Yeah. Well, I was. I was just starting to get published. I think I started writing in like probably '82, and I started off. Um, first I was writing for inspirational magazines and I came to the realization that, um, when I'm writing for inspirational magazines, I was basically preaching to the choir. Mm. They were already kind of there, but I started writing for some inspirational magazines, one in particular. And then I got to be, they were featuring me and commissioning artists and all that. And then I realized that, um, to quote unquote, speak a truth. Um, you really need to dramatize it. If you study uh, spiritual literature throughout, uh, Jesus spoke in parables, uh, Buddha told stories, Muhammad told stories. They're all storytellers. And all of the traditions of the world prior to the written language were actually oral traditions. So I, I made an effort to capture the oral traditions, especially some of them that are disappearing. Um, to preserve them, and because otherwise, if you have people that are telling stories in oral traditions and they start dying away, there's no record of it. So I've made one of my efforts has been to try to preserve that. That's um, incredible. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so important because a lot of these um, tribes people are just so marginalized, and even if you look at. Uh, the folks in the hunter gatherers in Africa, they just keep getting pushed away. Their hunting grounds keep getting smaller. They're more westernized. They're eating more of the Western way and they're getting sicker now as well. So anything you can do to preserve some semblance, you know, of the culture, of their ways, you know, this it's a it's a great um, you know, good on you, bro. No, thank you. It's my novel Land Without Evil, I wanted to capture that. Because the other thing I realized is that um, history is written by the victors. Whoever is the conquering culture, they're the ones that write the history. And they yeah. actually make efforts to undermine um, other cultures at their roots Yeah, to, to try to erase them. It, it happened, you know, repeatedly in ancient Egypt and also, you know, in Maya and Aztec cultures and Inca cultures. Whoever's in charge would more or less try to wipe out what preceded them and make themselves that you know the flavor of the day so to speak and the others were savages or whatever yeah or they're people. you know this ruler did that no well, now it's going to be me so let's take his name off all these great feats and let's make them mine you know a lot of that stuff went on they they, they changed the inscriptions and wiped them out yeah i think that's why studying history now is a little bit you're like studying falsehoods like napoleon uh, is said to have said history is a set of lies agreed upon yeah I, I agree and you know the whole idea of oral storytelling has evolved over the years it's come full circle now yeah with podcasting and everything and audiobooks yeah so you let's let's um i love what you said there earlier if you want to tell the truth you need to dramatize it now i wrote my 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 book in um, 2020 is when I published it. And it was very, it's nonfiction, obviously it's on autism. So it was very inf information based, just presenting, you know, science, uh, what to do about certain things, testing. So I've been, I've had an idea for a second book that would be shorter, more readable and would, would incorporate a little bit more storytelling and less technical stuff. And I, I feel like you you do that, you're likely to reach people more. Even though you're giving them less data and information and facts and figures, the, the less information you give them will be actioned upon them much more so. So how does how does one approach like a, a, a fairly you know dry or technical or touchy subject and incorporate this sort of shamanic storytelling uh, that you talk about in your book, Fantastic Fiction, for example. Yeah. So the key is metaphor. 
And metaphor is one thing that gives you an idea of something by describing something else. You could say her eyes were as black as coal. Oh, okay, that's how black they were. Because you can relate to seeing coal, right? Mm-hmm. So one of my challenges all of my life has been to take visionary experience, which is not rational, which is not necessarily, you can't describe it like you, you can describe a sunny day, um, unless you want to throw in all the psychedelic patterns and colors and you know yeah. things that go, go with it. But how do you take an experience like that that defies description and put it in a way that people can get some sense of that experience without having had it themselves? And the key is in is in metaphor. So when you find really good examples and you use them judiciously, you can get people to understand um, just how something can feel and get a sense of it. As a writer, more so in fiction, um, but even in nonfiction, but in, in um, fiction, you want to put your audience, put your reader there in the middle of the experience. It is more challenging, um, you know, like my last book was Holographic Cosmic Man, which mm. is very scientific and, and mm. sort of technical. And I've been walking this line for some years now between spirituality and science and trying to take spiritual concepts and then apply the science to it so that people know um, they can relate to it in that way. I'm, I'm kind of I'm always going after the atheists and the intellectuals just to show some proof that, hey, look, this is how things are. You can argue with it if you want, and I'm not certainly not trying to convert anybody. We're all entitled to our own sense of beliefs. But um, to put it in a way, that when you do something that people relate to, you know, even in, in fiction, if you have a character or even a bad guy, if you have a, a bad guy and someone was reading about that bad guy and relates to it and thinks, wow, I know how that person feels then they know how it feels to be a bad guy. And that makes the bad guy even more evil in a lot of ways because then people can go, oh my God, I could be like that myself, which is true. All, all the horrible things that go on in the world, we're all humans. And we're all capable of all of those horrible things because we're all humans. So, you know, all bets are off. But, but just to kind of circle back, the, the key is in, is in metaphor and what is one thing compared to another. And that's how people can understand and put themselves in that place to grasp it. And you want to do it artfully in such a way that you're not beating them over the head with it. It's a it's a, it's a very fine line that you need to walk in order to get it across. I've been doing good with it. Um, but, you know, I've been honing my craft for all these years now. So, yeah. um, you know, if I'm not any better now, I better give up. <laughs> no, I think you're you're definitely are getting better. You, you just published, hold on, I, I saw it earlier. You just published The Thinning Veil. So you yeah. published one more book now since we spoke last, right? Yes, sir. Just came out. So what's your, what's your, um, what is the reason, what draws you to these uh, shorter story formats? There's a number of things. I, I had written my first novel. I think I spent five years on it. Wow. And I decided to take a short story writing course to learn how to, uh, to write tighter and to be more succinct and to refine some techniques. And the other really great thing about short stories is you can, you can experiment with different points of view, different environments, different plotting. You can really do a lot of things. Once you're committed to a novel, you're committed to a novel and you got to stay within the, the, the parameters of that writing. But with short fiction, you can experiment in all kinds of different ways. The other thing was back in the 80s when I was getting started, a lot, of, a lot of ways to get discovered was to write short stories and be published maybe with bigger name writers or maybe if, if you're lucky. I got lucky and got hit in, um, published in some very big magazines with big readerships. So it was also a really good way to break in. But there's an entirely different art to short stories than there are to writing novels. So my very first short story collection the Small Dark Room of the Soul was published in 1994 and actually it was my very first published book. And that was the one that Ray Bradbury gave me um, some blurbs for. 
up front, and he never used to give out blurbs, so that was an extra special honor. And then the the feature story was uh, was put in the year's best horror and fantasy. It would have got a higher profile at the time, but it was late to the game when they were publishing it, so they threw it in there under an honorable mention because it was like a last-minute thing. But to experiment with all those different things, Ray Bradbury, by the way, was a masterful short story writer. He started off doing that. And he used to write regularly for the, they used to call them pulp pulp magazines. Uh, the whole idea from the movie Pulp Fiction had to do with those things. So, you know, there were horror, fantasy, and science fiction, amazing stories, fantasy and science fiction, weird tales, a bunch of those. Um, so you could get exposure and try try different things. So the theme of the small dark room of the soul, I'll probably mangle my own quote here, but it says (laughs) something like, uh, throughout the centuries, countless spiritual disciplines have urged us to seek the truth. Part of that truth lies within a small dark room, one we are afraid to enter. So that was the theme. And I realized afterward that not only were all my monsters human, but that the story... um, the, the the story the, all of the stories were actually an examination of humanity's shadow and then i don't know what it was 10 years later or something um i came out with a second one called a short walk to the other side and that has to do with the fact that it's only one step into madness you can you can be living your life normally and happily and one little thing one little event one thing can happen can change your life completely yeah you know, that one stepping off the abyss into madness or that one moment, that crime of passion. So um, my fans have been bugging me for more fiction because I've been cranking out these nonfiction books because they just keep coming. Yeah. So one of them, my biggest fan probably, is begging me for more fiction. So I came up with 13 stories. Um, and how, and this how, one, how, long does, how long does a book like this take you to write? This one might have taken me, let me think about that. I had a few stories in the can from before that were published in other places. But typically maybe maybe nine months because there were times like I was stuck on a plot point for like three days. Because when the novel's going, the novel takes on a life of its own and then you're going, you're going. But with short stories, you got to be as original as you can be. You got to make it happen. Pop. It's got to be, you, you really want to try to do something different. Mm. Um, and I get into a lot of, my, my short stuff can be science fiction horror or just weird science fiction or horror or just weird consciousness stuff. Um, <laughs> so keeping it original and coming up with new ideas for, for 13 stories was really, really a challenge. And then I, was, I have another new book coming out. Um, it's, I'm going to delay the publication for a while because I don't want to have too much come out too fast, but I have a new book that's almost done. It's called, I am consciousness incarnate, yeah, so it's which is all about out. consciousness. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I get stuck on the short stories and I'd say, I'm bailing on that and just throw them aside and forget about them and work on this book for a while. And then the ideas would start to come. Then I'd go back. So I was actually writing two books at the same time, but I would sometimes take a week or two off with the short stories because I was just stuck, you know? Yeah. So and do, you, do you ever take a day off like during the week? Yeah. You do, yeah? Good. I, I allow myself, I don't push myself like I used to. Like, dude, give yourself a break. Take a breather. The hell with riding. Let's go take a bike ride. There's a There's a whole thing that goes on. You may have heard me. We, we may have discussed this on one of your shows. Um, But what I've learned in shamanism is we have three energetic bodies. We have the intellectual, the emotional, and the moving. When you get stuck, there's really no such thing as writer's block. If if you're a pro, you can't afford anything like writer's block. That's just for rookies. So what happens is you get stuck in a story. I can't, I don't know where to go with this. And then you start to freak out. Oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. I can't write this. Why did I even start this? This is all crap, blah, blah, all that stuff that goes on. So you get stuck in that spot and you get stuck between those two 
uh, energetic bodies. Well, the key is to move. So you go out and forget about it for a while. Go take a walk, ride your bike, go to the gym. Don't think about it. And you've probably heard a million stories about you're suddenly in the shower and you get inspired. Or you wake up in the middle of the night and there's your, there's your, you know, you, you solved your problem mm, um, sure. and you write it down. So it's a matter of shifting it and not getting yourself all spun up and, and just letting go and forgetting about it and let your subconscious do the work. And it will surprise you at how much it will deliver. Yeah. I've seen that myself in the last months and years for sure. Yeah. People don't realize it, but you know, even just getting in the shower and just the water hitting your body, suddenly it shifts everything because your attention, your focus has changed. Yeah, even and yesterday, I started working at 7 a.m. at the computer here. And by, I think, what was it 6 o'clock in the evening? I was, I mean, I, I took a couple of breaks, but my eyes were hurting. I was getting a headache. <laughs> my neck yeah. was st stiff. And I was just, I had a general feeling of unhappiness because I, I didn't feel like I had accomplished anything. So then I, I left the house, went out with the dog. And as soon as I went out and kind of saw some trees, like my, my eyes suddenly didn't hurt. My, my mm -hmm. head stopped hurting. I, I felt good. And I came back and I came up here. And I turned the computer off and I said, you know what? I did a hell of a lot today. A hell of a lot. It's about not, not what's undone, it's about what's done as well. You know, you can't just focus on what you have, what's on your to-do list. What did, what did you check off on the to-do list? So it's um, it's definitely, your, I, I definitely resonate with what you're saying is to unstuck, unstuck the emotions in the intellect, you got to move the body. And that's one thing I think a lot of writers, uh, I was talking with a, a, an author friend of mine actually yesterday, and he, he's, he said like, he would just be there all day at the computer writing, researching, and doesn't get to eat anything. Like he eats one meal a day, you know, just <laughs> just riding all day. So it's 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 a very good strategy. This. Yeah, you got you really got to move. Even just as you know, your your lower back for Christ's sake, sitting in a chair all day, right? Oh yeah. You just got to get up and move around. And I'm I'm always telling my students, it's it's the journey, it's not the destination. Yeah. Um. You know, yeah. when I teach in the workshops, I take I take a sampling of everybody's writing and we do an analysis of a sampling. It's like a snapshot. Mm -hmm. And I, I have them read five pages. And then we do an analysis of those five pages because, like, if they're using too many adverbs in five pages, then they're using too many adverbs in the rest of the book. Sure. And all the little things, I call them ticks, that you pick up on and you help them to refine their, their work and they get better and better and better. Mm -hmm. Keep working at it. Cool. Oh, I like that. Uh, I started reading your book, Fantastic Fiction, um, which is the subtitle is A Shamanic Approach to Story. Can you tell us what is, what, because there's a lot of books on how to write. What is the shamanic approach to story that you talk about? I've only read uh, like 20, 30 pages of the book, so uh, only getting into it now, but huh? can you give us your sort of viewpoint of it yeah i can give you a number of riffs and then rein me in if i go too long but um all of the great stories um all of the great stories follow the hero's journey which was really brought to the forefront by joseph campbell um he wrote a number of books but the most famous one is the hero with a thousand faces and he found that all of the great stories and all of the mythologies in the world follow the hero's journey. Now, there are very specific things about the hero's journey, like, like, and I'm going to just give a brief overview of it. But in the beginning, everything is good in the, in the, in the hero's life. And they're not a hero in the beginning. And then something upsets the balance. Then the hero's journey is to reset the balance. So then it starts them off on a quest. And then on that quest, they meet allies and they meet their opponents, the antagonists. And they move forward and they go through a series of um, events that shift the narrative going forward, ultimately bringing them to a moment of transformation where they become the hero. 
Star Wars, Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings, every one of those follows the hero's journey to a T. If you sit there and you're really paying attention, you can see at what point in the story that particular ships and characters come in and transformations happen. They all follow that. Now, what I've discovered through all my research is in shamanism, worldwide, there's the shaman's journey to the underworld. In some cultures, they get decapitated. In some cultures, they get their bones removed, you know, metaphorically and, and replaced with quartz. Um, different things, but they're all the same thing. They basically get down into the underworld where they get destroyed or dismembered, and then they come back as the new person and become the hero. That journey is everywhere. I mean, it's in remote tribes in the Amazon, it's in Eastern cultures, it's in Western cultures, even, even you know, Christianity, right? Jesus Jesus went and died, and on the third yeah. day he arose again, right? Mm. Um, it's, it's very deeply embedded in our cultural psyche. So I realized that that actually, that shamanic transformation was the core of, of the hero's journey. Aside from that, everything in shamanism is energy. Everything is energy. So when you look at a story going forward, every single word in every single sentence, in every single paragraph is energy. To, to make a statement uh, is using energy to even speak, whether reading or orally or, or whether it's being heard or whether it's being read. It all has to do with energy. And one of the things among a million others that I teach my students when I'm teaching this is when you're writing, particularly in fiction, you want to use active verbs instead of passive voice. And when I say passive voice, I'm meaning like was and were. Um, if you say something like, um, um, it, was a hot, it was a hot day, big deal. But if the sun blazed in the sky, then blazed is an active verb. And it actually energizes the writing and carries it forward um, more so then just say, it was hot, duh. Right. I mean, that's like lazy. It just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you use active verbs, you're energizing the writing. And when you look at the whole structure of a story going forward, you're, you're manipulating energy with the words. And the words are creating pictures in the mind. And I always like to say that the act of, uh, the act of reading is an, actually an act of co-creation between the reader and the writer. And it's the writer's job to pick what we call significant details to give enough. Uh, I like to think of the mind as the palette and the words are strokes of a brush. But but it's a, it's dynamic. It's not static like a portrait. It's a, it's a, a movie. Yeah, yeah. And so to, to be a good writer, you want to put those details in there that your reader can latch onto, and then provide the other half of the reality from their own mind. So you can't. You can write a story and you can have eight people read it and you and you, they can get eight different meanings out of it depending on what they bring to the story when they read it. People don't realize that co-creation and newer writers tend to overwrite everything because they want you want to make sure you get what I'm trying to say. They're not giving the reader credit. And it's more, it's more for lack of better words, it's just more of a rookie mistake. They don't know any better. They're trying to learn. Yeah. And they're trying to be effective. But less is always more and making every word count, and making every word carry its weight. That's really where the key is. And some writers are famous for it. You may not be as familiar with it, but um, he died a few years ago. I got to know him a little bit. There was an American writer called Robert B. Parker, and he wrote a series called Spencer for Hire. And there was a TV show, Spencer for Hire, and it was set in Boston. So I'm rewatching it now. I loved it because I grew up in Boston, and I get yeah. to see, you know, all that stuff, right, in Boston. But he was a master at dialogue. And his dialogue would just carry the story along, and you're not getting as much description, but you don't care because you're so caught up in the story. Another famous one, and, and they were friends, was Elmore Leonard. He did Get Shorty that was made into a movie, and he did tons of other ones. Um, and he always said, when I go through my edit, 
if that word's not doing anything, I get rid of everything that's not carrying the story forward. So you really have to be ruthless about it. But less is always more. And when we're newer writers, we don't realize that. We want to get out there. We get out those flowery words and all those adjectives and adverbs that don't really add to anything. It's more of an insecurity as a writer. Mm, for sure, for sure. So, you know, you work at it and, you, and you're, you're honing and refining um, and, and polishing and making it better and making it really have impact. Yeah. I, I had this, this is more fiction related. I, I read this book called Writing Without Bullshit. And ah. that, that's what the guy, I have, um, I'm just looking for it here. Oh yeah, it's right here. I keep it next to my, um, so 10, 10 writing tips for, and the psychology behind them. So basically, uh -huh. this is again for nonfiction and business writing and stuff, but he says, write shorter, shorten your sentences, rewrite passive voice, eliminate, eliminate weasel words. Like, you know, uh, for example, just to give you an example, for example, may, could, perhaps, replace jargon with clarity and a lot of people like insecure writers for example even myself you would use jargony words to show how smart you are or how much research you've done and then people can't understand you and they give up on reading on you you know and then it's stuff like use i we and you move key insights up cite examples and give signposts that's again um that's again non-fiction but a lot of what you said actually relates to this yeah you know there, there's a there's a lit litany of sins there's uh was were just you you just mentioned some of them was were just seems mm -hmm. um, as if um begin to um you don't need them and when you yeah. take them out um you know it's a big difference. If, if you say he was angry, who cares? If you say he put his fist through the door, <laughs> God, I guess he's angry, right? And it's action. And, you're, yeah. and, and the other thing I'm always beating up on students for is it's a fiction writer's creed, and that is show, don't tell. So you don't want to be telling me. We, we call it reader feeder. And newer writers tend to do it more in their beginnings because they're they're trying to get all across. Well, you know, he has a PhD from Harvard and blah blah. Eh, let that come out in the story. You know, let it let it evolve naturally and show me. Don't don't tell me. And there's another thing that newer writers need to learn that I'm always preaching, and that is that you can hook people in the beginning more by what you don't tell them. You know, the, the, the example, it's, the best examples are cliches, but the example is your typical mystery story, you know, especially old school. What do you do? You start off with a dead body, right? Well, there's a question. How did they get to be dead? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the whole story goes forward um, and explains to you why they got dead. There's, there's even a famous one, um, I think it's called movie, uh, Sunset Boulevard, old movie, black and white. And it starts off with a guy, a dead body floating in the pool, right? And it's a voiceover and he says, hi, I bet you're wondering why I'm dead floating in the pool. And then the story unfolds and you get all the way through the whole story. And in the back of your mind, as you're watching the story unfolding in your mind, you're thinking, well, how the hell did that guy end up dead in the pool? Right? And that, you know, you finally find out. The other one, there's a million of them, but that's one of my favorite ones. The other one, uh, if you ever heard of the famous Japanese filmmaker, uh, Akira Kurosawa, Kurosawa. Yes, yes, yeah. His Rashomon tells the story of a, a robbery and a murder, and he tells it from three points of view. And one of them is from the point of view of the dead ghost, right? And there's so much that you can do like that, you know, being creative. The other thing I'm telling people, this is more toward fiction, is that yeah. when you're in charge, when you are the god or goddess of the universe that you are creating, you're in charge of time and space. And you're in charge of everything. So you can say, you know, um, he left his wife. And then you can say, these are all bad examples, by the way. Uh, for the next 20 years, nothing happened. 
in one sentence, you just passed 20 years of time, right? Mm. You can also take a situation that could be mundane and you can spend a lot of time on um, and something that may only take place in minutes in real time. And you can spend pages describing it if it, if it, um, if it validates having that much intensity in that moment, that much focus. So there's lots of things you can do. There's millions of techniques. Yeah. Um, I was really blessed when I got with the Santa Barbara Writers Conference um, because I had Ray Bradbury to mentor me or my, my other primary mentor who started the conference, Barnaby Conrad. He's passed away some years now, but um, he... Um, he was just a, a real master at his craft. And he took me under his wing and he showed me lots of things that you don't learn necessarily even in an MFA program. You know, and then, like I said, there was, there was Ray Bradbury and Charles Schultz, um, Charlie Brown Peanuts. He was a regular. His son, Monty, now owns the conference. He took me under his wing. And, and Chuck Champlin, who was at the time the leading L.A. Times movie film critic for 25 years, those guys took me under their wing and taught me and showed me and, you know, um, schooled me on the best way to be uh, an effective writer. You know, but Barnaby, in his day, he was the only American to fight bulls in Spain, in Peru, and in Mexico. Wow. wow. Yeah, and he was a bestseller at 29. His uh, book was called Matador was the last day in the life of Spain's most famous bullfighter, Juan Belmonte. Wow. Um, but to be a young guy like me going in there not knowing anything and to have those guys really take me under their wing and school me and then actually, uh, I, at the time, I was one of the only people writing really, really weird stuff. <laughs> so um, they had asked me to start teaching, which I did. And like I mentioned, I was the youngest workshop leader for 15 years. And what a blessing that has been. Yeah, you man, know? You, you've had, and I you know we talked, we've talked at length about it, but you've had a, a very eventful life with, and you, you were friends with Terrence McKenna. Mm -hmm. And you, did you know uh, Sasha Shogun as well? Yes, you bet. <laughs> I love those <laughs> That's guys. incredible, dude. That is absolutely yeah. incredible. The um my my historical novel Land Without Evil, which I kind of touched on, the first contact between the Jesuits and the Indians in South America, but it's told from the Indians' point of view. I had already known Terence, and I actually gifted him with my first short story collection, Small Dark Room of the Soul. He really liked it because I knew him from the Entheobotany seminars. Mm. And then the last thing he did before he died was the All Chemical Arts Festival in Hawaii. And I couldn't go because my book was just coming out right at that time. So I worked it and I had a friend of mine personally deliver the copy. And Terrence got the absolute very first copy of the hardcover printing of Lamb Without Evil. And it may very well have been the last book he ever read. I'll never know for sure. Wow, it's wheels. But I was happy to be able to do that. And I got to spend time with, with Ann and Sasha Shogun. I used to love sitting with them. Me and Sasha used to sit there and just trade bad puns all day, go back and forth. And uh, and his wife, Ann, who just passed away recently, like a year or two ago, mm. she's the one that encouraged me to really dig into writing about the shadow. Um, wow. So, you know, they were like my psychedelic grandparents. Uh, <laughs> Sasha really was more like a wizard. <laughs> You know, and Terrence was there, and Paul Stamets was a regular. Uh, Giorgio uh, Samarini, um, he was the expert in, in Iboga. Um, all of these people would come to the Entheobotany seminars, and they were held at the Maya ruins. I went for four or five years. Um, and that was, they, they all, like Paul Stamets, they, they, I gave them all copies of Land Without Evil also, but Terrence got the very first copy of it. And he's wow. been a big, big influence. Um and an inspiration. So what so, was uh, Sasha Shogun like? I mean, I've, I've seen some lectures and him presenting and speaking. He, he looks like a fun guy. But what, what was he like to sit down and or party with or whatever? Great, great, great. Best ever sense of humor. 
and he would mess with you and, and tell you. And he had his whole gaggle of young chemists who followed him around. You know, they were his, they were his acolytes, whatever you want to call them. So when he would get up to lecture, he would get up there with the big whiteboard or the big piece of paper, and he'd say, I'm going to draw you some dirty pictures. <laughs> and then he, he'd, he'd draw like the DMT molecule, and then he would draw like, you know, the 5-MeO DMT. And then he would get into the plants and his process and how he made his discoveries. And, and, and anybody who doesn't know, he and his wife, Ann, wrote two books, Pecal and Tecal. Pecal is phenethylamines I have known and loved. And Tecal is tryptamines I have known and loved. And as a matter of fact, when I he published those books, and what, what he would do is, is he would create these novel substances, and then he would try them on himself. And then in these two books, he wrote out the recipes and his experiences and his experiences with Anne, his wife, and, and, he, and he published them. Well, the government screwed with him and went after him and tried to sue him, and he was in court. So my very first entheobotany seminar was in San Francisco in 1996, and I didn't know anybody at that point. Uh, was, that was when I first sort of rediscovered the tribe. And Anne was there and she had, they had a little table and saying, you know, this is the legal fund for, for Sasha because they're messing with him. And I didn't have any money. And I think I gave her 20 bucks. I might've only gave her five, but I think I gave her 20. Even though I didn't have it, I gave it. And you know, two weeks later, I got a two page handwritten letter from Anne thanking me for the 20 bucks. Wow. And then I was like, I love these guys. Right. And then I would see them regularly, like I say, at the entheobotany seminars when they came and we'd get to hang out and have dinners and lunches and breakfast together and go to the lectures and we would tour the ruins together. And he was just like the big, big psychedelic grandfather, you know, or I, just, I always like to think of him as a wizard. I could, I could almost envision him <laughs> wearing the big wizard hat, you know? Yeah. Like Gandalf or something. Yeah, totally. Totally. Like, probably in a, in the past incarnation he was maybe that's how through the morphogenetic field accumulation he was able to become so adept at this stuff yeah yeah he was really a guiding light um and people i knew had done a lot of research with him prior to me ever even showing up on the scene i didn't know i went through tons of psychedelics when i was younger and then um I was a vegetarian for 23 years, and I went. I spent 13 years totally baseline. I wouldn't even take an aspirin if I had a headache. Yeah. I wouldn't drink coffee. I stayed that way for 13 years until I discovered Terrence McKenna. And Terrence McKenna, um, food of the gods. Mm. In fact, I'm going to back up a second to tell you a really quick story without going on too long. But... Um, that story I told you about my first fiction story that I won a fiction award at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, which was in 1989. And the workshop that I was in, the woman who led the workshop would read the story. And nobody knew who wrote it because she would read it. So then you could get really honest criticism because nobody didn't know who you know, anybody was. And she read that story. And I got a standing ovation. And I was just blown away. And I was like, oh, my God. Well, after the workshop, all these old acid heads came out of the woodwork. And one of them was this sweet lady, Marjorie Livingston, PhD. She was 78. She had done some of the original LSD. She had a paper published in the Hawaiian Medical Journal in the 50s about LSD research. And she had this bright blue eyes. And she said, I can't relate to anybody of my age or my generation. They have no idea. And I really love your story. This is my article. I'd like you to have it. And can I please have a copy of your story? And I'm like, hell yeah. So I gave her the story. So like, I don't know, three weeks, a month later, I'm at home and I get a box in the mail of cassette tapes. And I'm like, um, sorry about that. Um, it was... Um, I open the box and there are these tapes and I put them in and I listen 
And I hear this voice, well, you know, I'm going to tell you about psychedelic. And I'm like, who is this weirdo? I mean, you know, the joke is you sound like Mr. Rogers on acid, right? <laughs> and then I started listening and I'm like, oh my God, this is profound. And that's how I discovered Terrence McKenna. And then I went and got Food of the Gods, which changed my life. And then I, I can tell this now, I won't get in trouble. I went off and um, I spent a thousand bucks. I got all the stuff and it took me three tries and failures. And then I was growing my own mushrooms. Mm. And then I was on my way. And then um, I was walking past a head shop in San Diego here. And I saw High Times Magazine and I said to myself, High Times Magazine, that thing's still around? Because I remember it from the 70s. So I went in and I opened it, flipped open the magazine. And right there where I flipped the page open was an advertisement for the Entheobotany Seminars. And there was Terrence McKenna and Sasha Shogun. All these people I had independently researching on my own were presenting. So I just got out my credit cards and I went. And became part of all that. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, evolved all through the years now to where we're at now. That's absolutely amazing. That's uh, the Psychedelic Salon, the podcast, is where I found you first. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, um, what's the dude's name? I'm blanking. That one's it. Lorenzo? Uh, Lorenzo, yeah, sorry. I haven't listened to it in ages. Um, and Lorenzo would play these old uh, recordings of Terrence you know, doing lectures and stuff like that. And that's, I definitely fell in love with the dude listening to him through the psychedelic uh, salon and yourself. That's why I reached out to you, you know, three years, it was three years ago at this point. Mm, wow. Gosh. Yeah. That, that, first off, thank you for that. Second, um, when I went to those entheobotany seminars, I would bring boxes and boxes of cassettes. And I recorded the lectures of everybody. I recorded Sasha. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Christian Reich. He just died about not even a year ago. Rings a bell. Christian was Germany's leading expert in shamanism. What a, what a great guy. And so um, Christian, as an example, Christian lived with the Lakandon Indians who live around the Maya ruins. Mm. And they, you can go tour the Maya ruins and listen to the tourist guides and blah, blah, blah. But, the Lacandon, who have been living there all this time, know the real stories. Yeah. And Christian actually lived with them for about three years. So we were walking through the ruins in Palenque, and I was recording it. And I recorded boxes and boxes. So uh, Lorenzo and I are good friends. Um, and when he told me he was going to start the psychedelic salon, I handed over boxes of tapes to him. Oh, wow. And I helped him start the psychedelic salon with all the recordings that I had. Amazing, bro. Yeah, and then I was on there like eight or nine times. I don't know if I lost track anymore. Um, and um, then I found out back then where there were iPods. Um, he got an exciting letter from this kid. This kid from China went to the ruins, had his iPod, put in the head, 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 headphones, and he walked through the ruins listening to Christian Reich's lecture on the, on the Maya ruins of Palenque on his iPod, right? And then, I, and then we realized, wow, here it is, this, this lecture that I had recorded two or three years before, and here's this kid from China getting the full thing of this knowledge that would have been lost, right? That's incredible, dude. So they, they, that started it, and then they, they, uh, they used to call Lorenzo the podfather because he was really one of the first to do it. So I was a regular on that. I've done interviews on there. I interviewed Jim Fadiman, who's another good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. I've um, listened to that one. Yeah. So it's all tribe. It's all family. They say find the others, right? Find the others, baby. Man, yeah. I love that, bro. I love that. Yeah, um, yeah you know, I, I think, bro, I think I'm going to wrap it up here this time around. Sure. Because... I want to let you recover from, you know, putting on five workshops and all the other stuff in the lectures. So yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Before we let you go, please let the listeners uh, where they can find you on the internet. Yeah. Okay. So um, all of my, all of my stuff is um, on Amazon. 
And then I have all my stuff on my own Mystic Inc. publishing website. So it's uh, M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-N-K-P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G.com. And then also, you'll probably post this anywhere, but mattpalamary.com, yeah. M-A-T-T-P-A-L-L-A-M-A-R-Y.com. That's my website. Your your podcasts that I did with you were on there. Nice. Radio, TV, um, other podcast interviews, photos. There's tons of content on there. And if people want to reach out, there's a contact thing on the forum. They can say hi, and it'll email me, and we can connect in that way. There's some pictures wanna, from the jungle there as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Tons. Yeah. And uh, and I really appreciate you having me on and having me back. I love your show. I love what you're doing. Uh, aside from what you're doing on the podcast, your regular work, I, I, I have a lot of respect for that. Thank you, bro. We so love I you appreciate- on the show as well. We love this. Yeah. Is, for me, the, the reason I really enjoy ha- having you come on is, I think, in a sense, similar to what you are doing to carry the torch of your mentors in the writing field mm. in in the sh- uh, you know the plant medicine shamanism field for me this podcast is is it's a privilege to basically get folks like you on because you you were folks like you you're the modern day elders now you might not see it yourself like that but uh, us younger folks definitely see guys like you, you, even though you're probably like only like 25 years older than me, that's not a huge age difference, but we see guys like you as the elders and there's a lot we can learn. There's a lot of wisdom that we can learn from these guys. And if we can record it, then, you know, we're doing a service to others. So I love that. And it's a, it's a great honor that I am one of the con- many conduits for this through through the podcasting game. Thank you for doing it. Much appreciated. Thank you. Make it all worth it.